Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rishi Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Abdul El Saeed. Dr. El Saeed is an epidemiologist, progressive activist, educator, author, speaker, podcast host, and CNN political contributor. He's a former health commissioner for the city of Detroit, where he rebuilt Detroit's health department after the city's bankruptcy. And he was a 2018 Democratic gubernatorial candidate in the state of Michigan. Thank you so much for being with us today. Honored to be here with you and really grateful for uh, you and the work that you're doing and uh, excited to uh, chat today. So, you know, your, your story is fantastic. And obviously you have medical background, public health background, you've been in politics. When in your career did politics of the three, like, first land on your radar is something that you're mm. kind of intrigued by. I'll be honest with you, that was never part of my plan. You don't do an MD-PhD to run for office. Um, that is a vast misuse of the skill set. <laughs> and if you are planning to run for office and you do an MD-PhD, that is a vast overqualification. You know, for me, I, I had always thought that running for office was off limits. My name is Abdurrahman Muhammad Sayyid uh, in all of its, you know, glottal glory. Um, and so, you know, I, I just never... Th- so saw it as being something that I could do, let alone that I'd want to do. But I, I got into public health and medicine because I believe deeply in the responsibility to achieve equity when it comes to access to a long, healthy life. And for me, that was informed by the fact that most summers I'd leave my comfortable suburban Metro Detroit home uh, and go 15 hours to Egypt where I'd hang out with my grandmother, aunts and uncles, cousins, grandfather. But my grandmother in particular, she gave birth to eight kids, two of whom died before the age of one. And I couldn't have articulated it then, but you know, she was emblematic of the 10-year life expectancy gap that I'd travel in about 15 hours when I would head over to Egypt. And so I wanted to do something about that. The crazy thing is I didn't have to go 15 hours. I could go 15 minutes into the city of Detroit and travel the same life expectancy gap. And I wanted my career to be about that and fixing that. And as I progressed through the system, I came to appreciate that, you know, not only does our healthcare system often fail to fix those problems, but often it actually is part of creating them. And that's when I think I first became really conscious of the fact of medicine and public health being deeply political. The first time anybody who knew what they were talking about told me that I should consider running for office, it was my college graduation and it was the main commencement speaker that year. I was the student commencement speaker uh, and it was President Bill Clinton. And it was it was a funny interchange. I, I gave my speech and he gave his speech. And he said, you know, some really nice things about me and his speech. And uh, not only was I think it was the first time my parents actually clapped for me, you know, being the, the son of immigrants. But um, but afterwards, right, I, I was waiting in line to talk to him and big, long line of people you know, reminiscing about his time as president, et cetera. And so I started to walk out and I felt a tap on my shoulder. And it was Bill Clinton. And um, he looks at me and he says, you know, son, why why are you going to medical school? And, uh, you know, the first thing that I thought it was like, well, I'm brown and Muslim and that's just what we do. (laughs) Um, But in all seriousness, I love people and I love science and this is how I want to serve. And he said, you know, you really should consider running for office. You've got a gift for communicating. I said, you know, it's really nice of you to say, um, but I don't know if you saw my full name. It's got 11 letters and that's just my first name. And he didn't even like deny that that would be a a barrier to running for office. He just kind of, we just kind of looked at each other and kind of laughed about it. Um, but 10 years later, uh, you know, I'm in this position where I've just finished rebuilding a health department in the city of Detroit. I'm watching as the same system of emergency management and state takeover poison 9,000 kids in Flint, 50 miles north of where I am, 
and watching Donald Trump get elected president. And at some point you have to ask yourself, well, if this is what I'm about, what's the responsibility? And I think that's that really is the first time I took running for office seriously. And then I ran, which was a whole different ballgame. That's an amazing story. And, and it's funny, the thing that strikes me and struck me about you when I first heard you speak is the way you speak. You don't speak like a doctor. You don't speak like most doctors I know, because most doctors I know speak in a way that nobody understands. And when I hear you speak, I understand what you're saying, and it's very relatable, and it has the weight of someone that knows what the heck they're talking about. And I'm curious like how that skill set helped you when you're kind of navigating the political landscape of the city and, and eventually when you ran for office for governor as well. You know, my grandmother, uh, same grandmother, was the best storyteller I have ever met. Um, she's a profoundly intelligent human being, never got to go to school. And in some respects, she was a living, breathing reminder that intellect and education are two different things. And the vast majority of people of deep intellect don't get the opportunity for deep education. And she was one of them. But her brilliance came out in her capacity to storytell. I mean, she just understood what the emotional tenor of a turn in the story was. She would describe the oddest details of parts of the story, but they'd always come back. And there was a reason she described them. And she just had this natural gift for storytelling. I mean, she could take a whole room of people and entertain them for like hours telling these different stories about people in her family or, you know, the traditional sort of which is a thousand and one nights stories. And so I, I think I learned how to tell stories from her. And one of the things that I tried never to let go of is the fact that a story is a far more powerful communication tool than an empirical analysis. And I think sometimes those of us who go through the process of being deeply educated is that we forget that most people don't go through that process. And I always joke with my students that being educated is the process of being mismented. You're not being demented. You're being mismented. You're being taught to learn and think in ways that are not normal. And empiricism is not the natural state of communication because it's, you know, for most of our existence as a being, empiricism was an impossible thing. We just didn't have tools to count that big. And so the way that we communicated wisdom was by telling really great stories. And that's why we're naturally better at both telling and learning from stories than we are at telling and learning empirical analysis. And so I think the key take home is that it's really critical to be led by empiricism and data in terms of understanding the direction we ought to go. But if the goal of operationalizing the direction is through people's behavior, you damn well better be good at telling the story. And that's about, I think, finding the anecdote data. It's about finding the individuals whose stories capture the broader story of the evidence in ways that inform and empower people's actual behavior. And I think that's really important. And, you know, I, I'll say the same. One of the things that struck me about your communication style is the same thing is that you're really quite good at being able to both understand and encapsulate the broader message of an informed analysis, but do so in a way that is accessible, not just to the intellectual tools that we bring to our lives, but the emotional ones. And I think sometimes that's the other part of it is we forget that humans are, are nothing if not irrational, but they're irrational in very predictable ways. And I think it's important, right, for us to always harness that irrationality in helpful ways. And that irrationality is beautiful. I mean, it's the reason we love, you know, going to concerts and sporting events. I mean, that's what life is made out of. It's, it's those irrationalities that make us human. If we were just rational automata, nothing would be fun. Nothing would be interesting. You know, you can statistically analyze who's going to win a basketball game, right? Why is it so exciting when the underdog wins? because of the tale of that, the humanity in that. Um, and I just think that sometimes we forget that that's what makes life interesting. That's the spice. So, 
So your grandmother is obviously a, a dominant influence. I'm just curious. Was it your mom's mom or your dad's mom? My dad's mom. Um, dad's mom. Yeah, she was. Uh, my dad was her oldest, and she was just this immense human being in all the in all the glory of humanity. One of the things that I really I'm really grateful for is that there is a way I think sometimes that you know we as and I say this with a certain level of brotherhood uh, we as children of immigrants can get caught up in this effort to validate ourselves based on what an institution tells us about ourselves. My grandmother is the smartest person I ever met and never got validated by an institution, not one, right? I mean, we, we don't realize this, but like I mean, my daughter goes to preschool. That's an institution. She is connected to an institution and she is reliant in some respect about what that authority tells her about herself for her own self-validation. And you can imagine being somebody who never walked foot into an institution, not once. The ability for you to inform a sense of yourself and a sense of what the world is around you when you've never been sullied by an institution is actually a very unique thing. And don't get me wrong, institutions are very powerful and very important. And yes, we build institutions for reasons and that matters. But sometimes I think we over rely on institutions and we don't check institutions when they fail to deliver on their stated aims. And I think my grandmother's example has been a constant check for me on remembering that leadership is bigger than an institution, that responsibilities are bigger than an institution. And an institution doesn't tell you who you are or what matters in the world. It can help inform that, but it doesn't define that. And she's always reminded me of that. Is your grandmother still alive today? No, she passed uh, about two decades ago, um, but you know, remains very much alive in, I hope, in the work that, that I get to do and, and what I hope to teach my kids and to leave on in the world. Yeah, and I'd be curious to know what she thinks. If she was alive, I'd, I'd be curious to know what she thinks of your chosen path. And, and I guess tied to yeah, your me point. Too. About, yeah, I mean, <laughs> me too. Yeah, me too. It's the kind of thing that one wonders about quite a bit. So obviously, you've worked in a few major institutions like political institutions, health institutions, educational institutions like you've been talking about. With education, I've always been struck by this idea of signaling. Like they signal to employers that you know X, Y, and Z. And whether you do or don't is sometimes unknown, truly. <laughs> but the fact that you have an MD means something to somebody, we, we think. Um, do you feel like the same is true of other institutions, like political institutions, health institutions? Is there a certain mm -hmm. sort of like signaling that you get if you go through certain channels that therefore you kind of have to, you know, do that, not because you learn something or get something out of it, but it's kind of needed, uh, especially in the political sphere. I'm just curious if you've had that experience now that you've been in politics, like, is it required that you kind of are part of this club or that organization or whatever? Um, because it's just sort mm. of assumed that that's what's needed, analogous to education, like you're saying, or is that quite different? You know, I've, I've always had sort of an oblong relationship to institutions because all of them have a set of stated aims, and then they have a set of revealed aims with respect to the actual outcomes that they pursue. And for some institutions, great institutions, those revealed aims and those stated aims are similar, or if not the same. And for many institutions, unfortunately, they are orthogonal. Uh, I would argue that you know the institution of our healthcare system has gotten to a point where really the stated aims and the revealed aims are, are fundamentally at odds um, in many cases, if not most cases. There's a whole debate in the economics literature about whether or not education is a function of signaling a, a certain internal capacity to achieve in an educational realm. I mean, we sort of assume that educational outcomes reflect intellect. I think they reflect a whole bunch of other features of, of an individual, many of which have a lot more to do with nurture than nature, or whether or not education is actually a process of upskilling. And it's probably some of both. I have found myself often 
working within institutions or around institutions to try to move them closer to their stated aims. You know, I think part of that is because I've had success that signals a certain level of validation out in the world in educational institutions that buys me enough cover to be able to run at institutions at times and force them to take on their inconsistencies uh, in ways that I don't know that I'd be able to if I hadn't been validated in the same way. And at the same time, I also know that that's work that does not happen enough and also comes with a certain level of cost. <laughs> um, and I think in politics in particular, right, there is a lot, I mean, politics, if nothing else, in a democratic society is about signaling. And there's a lot of signaling that happens that is just deeply inconsistent with the revealed aims of an institution. And, you know, as my engagement with my own party as someone who is a Democrat, but has often been on a different side of the discussion about what we ought to be doing as Democrats um, has sort of been in line with the way that I've sort of thought about healthcare and often the way that I've thought about higher education. And so I, I don't know what direction that goes, but I do think that that's important. I do think that we need a party in our country that is 100% committed to taking corporate dominance out of our healthcare system. I do think that we need a party in our current system that is willing to re-democratize our democracy. And unfortunately, I think sometimes the Democratic Party has been on the wrong side of those discussions. And my hope is that in some days more finesse and some days we'll say less finesse, that the engagement can move in that direction. Yeah, I think if I can restate what you said and make sure I understood it correctly, part of what I've always believed is at the crux of why I think a lot of people nowadays don't even trust institutions and to get around to kind of COVID and COVID vaccine, don't trust the vaccine even, is because they believe these institutions are not trustworthy, sometimes because of what you said, like the stated aim and the revealed aim sometimes feels like I said, orthogonal or, you know, not aligned. And I think that's a really good point. I mean, there's so many controversies today that could fit through that lens. Like, for example, like student debt is one that's at the heart of kind of what you're getting at. Our outcomes in healthcare for what we pay, they suck. And so that's another one where it's like, well, why are we paying so much for that kind of an outcome? Does that make sense? And does the way we pay make sense? So many of these are really about like, what's your state name? <laughs> And is that the best way to get it? And, and you really have to, if you're going to deeply question that, like you said, it, you question everyone's approach to this. And therefore, like you might find yourself either friendless or friend to all in, in a sense, um, because it's a really deep set of questions that really gets at the heart of like how these institutions were built, the history behind them, and how we got to this, in some ways, like very wacky place that we've ended up as a result of it. No, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, there's this... Um notion that was really popular in the 2010s, this notion of like doing well by doing good. The question that I've always asked is like, all right, well, when the rubber hits the road, would you rather do well or do good? And I think too often the incentives in our society align with doing well rather than doing good. And I just think that life is too short and there are too many people who are not doing well that sit on the wrong side of that. And, uh, you know, it's popular, I think, among people with extreme levels of privilege. And I would say that, you know, both you and I are among them to think that you can't have it all and to think that there is some sort of implicit about your privilege. And I, I just, you know, my grandmother reminds me again that that's not the case. And um, there are too many people on the wrong side who are really good people, who are really capable people, who work really hard, who sit at the wrong side of too many people choosing to do well rather than to do good. Yeah. I mean, that's a beautiful way of stating it. And I think that's exactly right. I think a lot of 
and I won't say a lot of us, I'll say me. I personally often am thinking about like well and good and I have come up with that issue. I'm like, well, I'd like to do well, but I think the world ought to do good, right? And it's like, well, if I can't suck it up and do good, then how can I expect anyone else to? And if I'm not set up because of our environment to even opt for that and I'm thinking about it, then really no one's going to opt for good. And if no one opts for good, then we're screwed. I mean, <laughs> you know, obviously in your background, you've got Medicare for All, a citizen's guide. Maybe as a final point, I'd love to, if you can, tie it back to that. It's, it's a book that you've obviously co-written and speak so beautifully about. Do you mind just sharing your thoughts on that? Sure. Look, I, I went to medical school like you because I wanted to learn how to heal people. And what I kept coming up against was the fact that our system itself either left people sick or at worst made them sick. And the question I came to was, what is the responsibility to take on that system? And how do we build out a system that is truly just equitable and sustainable? In the end, our current system, it is built around an unsturdy, and I would also say immoral foundation where we have an entire industry in the insurance industry that does not need to exist, that should not exist, that would be possible. There's a world that's possible where it didn't exist. And the question becomes, are we willing to do the morally right thing as a society to empower people with uh, affordable, accessible access to something that is a human right? Um, and what are the technical details of doing that? And that is what this book is an effort to do. It's to articulate that future. It is a household idea uh, because of the incredible efforts of, of people like Senator Sanders and others uh, who've run on and popularized this idea. But sometimes when you talk about the morally right thing to do, people will look at you and say, well, that's technically impossible. And so this book is about answering that point. Actually, it is extremely technically possible here are the technical details, but let's get back to the moral question, which you seem to want to obfuscate with your technical opacities. That's a really, really wonderful point. And I think that happens a lot is that, I mean, you don't want to have a debate. You kind of throw smoke, almost like how an octopus gets away by throwing black ink out there and it's creating confusion in the water. <laughs> That's how you can get away from a debate. And, and for all the listeners out there, I think that there are lots of different viewpoints that are equally valid. Having said that, I think that oftentimes the debate never even happens because of what you just said. And I think that's a beautiful point. Do you have any parting advice for folks that are listening that may be starting their health career and didn't have anyone tapping on their shoulder to say, hey, I'm a former president, you're kind of a special guy. What would you tell those folks that think, hey, could I do something different? Or how the heck do I get into this kind of an amazing role that Abdul has found for himself? Well, I'll be honest with you. There's nothing special about me. I have, I have a lot of great opportunities and I had people reminding me that those opportunities mattered. And I hope maybe I can pass that lesson on. Those opportunities matter. And if you're in a position where you're considering a health career and you have the privilege of being able to spend your life caring for people, make sure you allow both your intellectual and moral curiosity to carry you to the final set of questions. What is my responsibility here? What am I doing with the privileges that I have? I think in the end, privilege begets privilege. It either begets privilege for people who have it or people who don't. And I think, you know, in the end, we want to be people who are on the right side of that moral calculus and, um, and want to be people who are driving privilege for people who don't. There are plenty of people who are just as smart, just as capable. The question is that they have the opportunities. And if we can make our lives about making sure that they have those opportunities, 
then those are meaningful lives indeed. And those are lives worth living, both in, in the living, in the act of living them, and in having lived them. And I, I think that's what we're ideally here to do. And uh, I appreciate you uh, being someone who uh, drives in that direction. And uh, I know that there's a lot yet to do and looking forward to continuing to do it together. Wow, that was very, very inspiring. As a closing message, I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Uh, again, thank you so much, Dr. El Saeed, for joining the show. It was fantastic. My privilege. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you. Well, I'm Dr. Rish Desai. Thank you for joining today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.